you are listening to Pharmacy IT and Me, your informatics pharmacist podcast. Hey everyone, this is Tony Down. Welcome to another episode of Pharmacy IT and Me. And as with every episode, we start with this one saying that the intended audience is everybody. Today, we'll be speaking with our very special guest, Dr. Dennis Tribble, on what his role is in pharmacy technology and informatics. So thank you so much for taking some time to be on the podcast, Dennis. How are you doing today? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. I want to be sure that people understand that because I do work in industry, that what I'm about to say reflects my beliefs and my experiences, not necessarily the opinions of my employer, BD. Just, just so that everyone understands that I'm not speaking for BD. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So thank you for clarifying that. And I, I know that, you know, some companies do have some strict guidelines on that. So thank you so much for, you know, just uh, being on this podcast and being open to sharing your story. You know, just for the listeners who may, may or may not know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, hi, I'm Dennis Tribble. Um, graduated from pharmacy school in 1974, University of the Pacific. Did a residency in Greensboro, North Carolina. Spent about 12 years as a uh, hospital pharmacy, administrative pharmacist for uh, in the Chicagoland area, and then got the bug and uh, went into, uh, into industry primarily, in fact, exclusively around automation uh, and more explicitly, exclusively around pharmacy automation. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, I was always curious too. like, I know like a lot of people who go into the technology space, automation space prior to that, they would be uh, a pharmacist of some sort. And I was curious just for you, like when you started your career, what kind of uh, inspired you to go towards the pharmacy route just in general? Well, actually it was, it was door number two. I had gone to college for four years as a pre-med and discovered my junior year, medicine and I really didn't see eye to eye about life. So I was looking, I'm still interested in staying in the healthcare field and because I had a lot of uh, preparation in that area. Um, and also, in all honesty, I was draft number 125. When you graduate from college 1B, you know, someone who's been excused from the draft and you're no longer in college, you suddenly become a 1A. So I was looking for a way to get back into academia uh, to avoid being drafted and um, also wanted to continue to pursue a healthcare career and had a good friend who was a pharmacist, Sacramento at the time, that actually let me come help behind the counter in the store. And I got the bug at that point to, to do pharmacy and wound up going to pharmacy school. Oh, cool, cool. So when you were doing pharmacy school, like, did you kind of see like where the different avenues of pharmacy would go? Like, I, I don't know, like, I don't know the scope of pharmacy practice back then, like how it was versus now. So do you have like some history about that? Well, um, actually, the scope of practice probably wasn't incredibly different. The distribution of practitioners in various roles was different. And I would say that, by and large, people coming out of pharmacy school in 1974, which is when I graduated, most of them had as a as a career goal to eventually own their own store. Uh, as we know that that now uh, the number of, of pharmacies that are owned by individuals are incredibly small. Uh, compared to chain stores, uh, obviously the uh, distribution into clinical practice and institutional practice uh, has changed dramatically over that period of time. Remember, too, that in 1974, somebody's idea of powerful computing equipment was a handheld calculator. So, you know, when you start looking at going into informatics, that, that wasn't even a distant dream in those years. 
Oh, wow. So, so how long did you say again that you were in pharmacy, like traditional pharmacy practice before you went into automation? About 12 years. Wow. 12 years. What kind of, uh, what kind of made you decide? Like, what was uh, an inspiration for you to kind of move that route? Well, there were, there were a few things that happened at about the same time. The first was that, uh, I had uh, been approached by my boss at the time who had some spare mini computer capacity. Uh, you would laugh today at what that, that capacity was, but had some uh, spare capacity on a mini, an IBM System 34 uh, mini computer. Wanted to know if I wanted to automate our distribution process. Understand at the time, we were running profiles on something called a magnetic card typewriter. <clears throat> you would have a, a card that looked like a, like a punch card, only it was covered in magnetic media, and you would slip it into a, a box that sat on the side of an electric typewriter, and it would remember what you typed. And so we used that to keep our profiles and to generate labels um, and generate medication administration records for nurses and all that kind of stuff. So that was a form of automation, but it was pretty crude and it was pretty labor intensive. So when I got a chance to try and automate some of that, I did and learned a lot of hard lessons along the way. I was in my late 20s, early 30s at the time, and stupid enough to try anything, I guess. The uh, second thing that happened was that uh, my uh, church had decided to get themselves one of the early personal computers for various tasks and wanted, among other things, to have it perform some uh, mailing list and membership maintenance that uh, didn't they couldn't figure out how to get done. And they said, well, you know, Dennis plays with that kind of stuff. Why don't we ask him to do it? And in the process of that, I taught myself to program. At, at the time, it was Bill Gates's uh, Quick Basic, so it was pretty, you know, pretty raw. But I really rapidly figured out if I wanted to do what I wanted, I had to tell it how. So I wrote a church program. It wasn't all that great, but it was better than what they had before. And the third thing was that the hospital decided to go out and acquire a new hospital information system. And remember that in those years, the hospital information system had very little operational value. It was principally a finance and billing system that also managed basically admission, discharge, and transfer for the patients. And that was about it. So as I went through that process and began to understand where companies' vision were about uh, about where they thought these products would eventually go and all that, I developed a a really strong yearning for a system that was better integrated than anything I could get at the time. Remember that best of breed was the mantra at that point. So you had a lab system in the lab, and sometimes you even had a separate microbiology system and micro, and you had a maybe had a nursing system based on Unix machines up in the ICU, and the rest of the nursing staff had nothing. And the pharmacy had a computer system. It was a pharmacy system that they bought and paid for and ran. The result was you had a bunch of disconnected systems that not only didn't talk to each other, but really looked at the world semantically in very different ways. And the result was you could have three systems, five systems, 10 systems in the hospital, and they all disagreed with each other substantially on what was going on. So it, it turned out to be you know, quite an experience trying to deal with that. And I uh, got recruited by a uh, startup company in Southern California that was in 1986 was creating an EMR-centric HIS product 
these guys had a lot of really good ideas. Execution wasn't always that great, but uh, the ideas were just, I mean, that just thrilled me to death. I thought, wow, I've really got to go be part of this. So I took a cut in pay, rather substantial one, actually, cashed in my 401k and a few other things and <clears throat> moved to Southern California and started to work on this particular project. The process met some really, really sharp programmers who actually taught me how to program well, turned me into something more of a programmer and less than a hacker, or less like a hacker. I was pretty much a hacker in the old days. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. But one day you wake up and realize that life has passed you by. I was working 100 hours a week, not because the customer of the company wanted me to, but because I was that fascinated with the problems to solve. And uh, woke up one day and realized I didn't know my children. And so I, uh, I, I went away and looked around and contacted some friends uh, in the uh, pharmacy automation business, uh, actually in, in the IV automation business in Denver and said, you know, gee, you know, got anything for a guy like me? And they said, well, you know, we've got this position open for someone to manage our installation and service arm on our TPN compounders. Why don't you come to work for us? So I did. And that was good in a number of ways, both financially and uh, uh, in terms of my of work-life balance. And from there, I mean, the rest of the story goes on. I eventually left them to another startup company called Ford Health Technologies that put the first IV robot in place and the first IV workflow system in place. They eventually got bought by my old company in Denver, and that company eventually got bought by Baxter. And... Uh, one day I decided I wanted to go do something else. So I picked up the phone and called friends in another company and called Carefusion and they, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And, uh, so I worked for them for all of three months before I went through my third corporate acquisition in six years, which was the acquisition of Carefusion by BD. That's kind of where things are now. So uh, I, I want to say each acquisition led me to another good place. Uh, there were pieces of each one that were handled better or worse than others, but you learn to survive them. And uh, in general, I've, I've been very pleased with the outcomes of all of them. Wow, that's like a lot of experience. And it's really cool that you you were able to be part of a lot of like kind of the, the innovative steps and like the products that were, I guess, just starting around the time. And then now it's like used often today. And I, I like how you talked about the best of breeds model was like something that was very common uh, when you were uh, in your early career, which I want to also comment about. Uh, it's it's kind of funny because when I was like just even looking into this during my rotations, right? Like during my rotations, I graduated 2012 and in 2011 to 2012, I was going on rotations and I noticed there were still a lot of, you know, institutions doing best of breeds. I had to go look at four or five different systems just to get information for patient cases. And I was very surprised that even in around that time, the best of breeds model was still there for some institutions and yep. it was just still slowly moved to the enterprise. So, so yeah, that's, that's really cool to hear. So, so yeah. So when you were working on these uh, different systems, like what was kind of like, you know, uh, what were some of the things that you learned from your 12 years in uh, traditional practice that was able to be uh, applied to your technology piece, the informatics piece that kind of helped you be more successful? Well, you, you know, it's funny. Uh, one of the one of the things I teach at, uh, at one of the pharmacy schools in California, and uh, one of the things I tell in an informatics curriculum 
And one of the things I tell my students is, you know, if you if you're going to go into pharmacy, if you're going to go into informatics as a pharmacist, what you bring to the equation that nobody else does is domain knowledge about pharmacy practice, and that means you got to have some miles on the tires. So I went all the way basically from a staff pharmacist when I first got out of my residency to a supervisor to an assistant director, moved to another hospital and became a director and practiced there until I went into industry. You, you know, you you learn a lot of things. There's a lot of things you don't learn unless you happen to be working with someone who opens your eyes to the realities around you type of thing. And I was fortunate to have a boss who's still a good personal friend uh, who did that for me. But, uh, you know, always thought of pharmacy as a, as a money-making operation for the hospital until I my CFO sat me down and taught me the ropes around things like, you know, adjusted payments and, and insurance contracts and those kinds of things. And by the time, you know, you applied all the contractual allowances to what you thought was your revenue, you were barely making any money. So the guys, even back then, the guys in the in the finance part of the organization, you know, they didn't see pharmacy as a, as, a, as a revenue center. They saw it as a cost center. And we were running a pretty robust outpatient pharmacy as part of that, which that at least should have been better than it was. And and so, you know, it was it was one of those things that really got me to appreciate the value of integration was because I started because of those leaders that I worked for. I started working with a bunch of people I would normally consider adversaries. And because that's the way pharmacy was in those days, you know, pharmacy was this little fortress down in the basement, arming itself against all those people on the floors who were making our lives miserable. And, you know, at some point in time, you have to get to the point where that's not the way you look at the world anymore. And so, although I still run into an awful lot of folks who do, the, the you know, the, the bottom line was that you know, I learned a lot about how operations work and being in more than one hospital and seeing more than one system really, really makes a difference. I'll tell you that industry was a better thing for that at the end of the day, because I actually got to see a lot broader variety uh, of pharmacy practice once I got into industry than I ever did while I was in practice. But, um, you know, I, I think the bottom line is you have to, especially if you've done any automation of your own in in your practice, you, you've been forced to realize that all the assumptions you used to make about how things actually work are probably wrong. And, you know, if you sit down with a jaundiced eye and start di- dissecting what people are doing and why they're doing it and how many varieties of, of ways there are to skin that cat, you, you get to the point where you realize that th- th- this is an opportunity that's ripe for automation. If only you could get people to give up doing things their own way. And that's a battle I fought for 30 years, and I still don't think I've come close to winning it. But, you know, that, that's that's really one of the things that it's a mistake I made in practice that I didn't learn until industry, which was assuming that the way we did everything now was the only right way uh, and that there, nobody could bring a better way to me if I was just to be willing to open to it. One of the biggest mistakes I made was that my boss, when I was in practice, brought in a friend of his who was an industrial engineer who came and watched us for a few days and tried to sit me down and get me to think about why it was we did certain things we did. And I'll be honest, at the time, I wasn't ready to take that input. And all I did was justify what we do currently, which I look back now and realize was just me being very scared of change. And I lost a lot of opportunity there. And uh, that really kind of opened my eyes in retrospect when I look back on it and made me realize, okay, 
you know, if, if somebody's going to come with, you know, new automation and those kinds of things and different ways of approaching the problem, they may not know everything they need to know about how I do what I do and why I do it that way. But it's worth my while to take a look and see if it makes any sense and suspend judgment and disbelief at least long enough to try it on and walk a few steps in it and make sure that it's going to, that it will, I think it will or won't work. Because at the end of the day, if I've learned nothing else about automation, automation that doesn't change the way you work isn't doing you any good. And I believe that very, very seriously. The really uh, disruptive stuff that people have done are not things you can lay on top of what you currently do. They're things that have make you have to stand back and reevaluate. I've got this new tool. Okay, how am I going to approach the job with this new tool? So that's probably a lot of what I learned. But but again, if, if I had been in, in places, if I had not been in places where I really had to learn to get along with the with the larger care team, I probably wouldn't have learned gotten the good learning I did during my practice. Wow. So you know, I really like that you emphasize the uh, the learning process and in practice, like you're just continually learning. And I think that's something that uh, maybe some students don't know yet that, you know, students in school right now just think like once they're done with school, then they get their job and then that's that. But it's a big emphasis that, you know, uh, like even what you said, like just operations change all the time, or even like the, the field of informatics and technology, technology is changing all the time. And there's always that aspect of lifelong learning. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, thank you for, for mentioning that. And I, I also wanted to kind of delve into, uh, what you just talked about all your experiences. Was there something that, you know, maybe if you have to choose one kind of experience in your entire career that stood out, uh, what would that be? Wow. <laughs> That's actually a pretty difficult thing for me to answer. I've got to say that that I learned a lot working in startup companies because to some degree, very, very large organizations and, and stable organizations that, uh, that I've been through, you know, they've got a lot of cushion. At the end of the day, they've got good markets. They can take their time getting stuff done because they've got products that are funding them and all that kind of stuff. But when you're with a startup, you got to love the belly acid. You, you, you got to love the anxiety. You get up every day and everybody in the startup who's in any kind of a management capacity knows exactly how much money you've got in the bank and exactly how fast you're spending it and exactly what every customer you've been able to inveigle into looking at your product, you know, is telling you good, bad and ugly about it. And you make some really, really hard decisions about what are we going to do next? And it's the kind of thing, right? where you're really forced to confront a whole bunch of realities. Um, you know, we as pharmacists, we're brought up with the notion that the only acceptable level of risk is zero. And especially in a startup company where you're, you've got a whole bunch of stuff in front of you to do, and you've got to figure out what the most important stuff is to do. You know, you have to stratify risk. And you, especially if you're regulated by the FDA, you have to stratify risk and you have to attack First and most heavily, the risks that have the, the 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 highest rating for being risky, right? That are most likely to cause harm, whether that's financial, regulatory, uh, you know, patient harm, whatever. But you you've got to be able to focus on those first, and at some point, which means you have to develop a mindset that not all risk is the same, right? And you have to you have to do special things for the really risky stuff and be willing to, to throw your resources because they're very definitely finite. Really throw your resources at the stuff with the highest risk. 
and save worrying about the other risks until you've got those done. And uh, because some risks have a, you know, are so low either in terms of their severity or their likelihood that, you know, they, they really aren't, they really aren't as pressing as the ones that are very likely and very, have a very high potential for harm or a very high potential for occurrence. One of the things that taught me that I, I still think we're trying to learn as a profession is the notion of foreseeable misuse. That's an FDA term, which is you can't just test the happy path in the product and you can't just willy nilly throw stuff at it to hope you can find a way to break it. But you have to step back and ask yourself the hard questions you don't like to answer about things like, okay, given what I know about the customers I ever dealt with, what are the ways somebody might misuse this? Let me give you an example. When I was in the compound TPN compounder business, we used barcoding to validate that you'd put the right ingredient on the right lead in the TPN compounder. And more than once, I walked into a, uh, a hospital where the, uh, the technicians put all the barcodes on a piece of paper on the side of the hood. And instead of actually scanning what they were hooking up to the compounder, they were just scanning this piece of paper. In part because periodically when things came in from different suppliers, what they really should have been doing is sitting down and updating their formulary. And since no one was assigned to do that, it was just easier to keep scanning all the old stuff, even though it produced all sorts of weirdness with the way the device worked. Uh, and some of it was downright hazardous. And it certainly didn't protect them from making an error because they weren't scanning what they were actually using and, 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 and those kinds of things. So, you know, I've developed a, over the years as a result of this experience, it's a, a really, really strong sense of what people are likely to be willing to do and what they're going to work around because it's just too much effort for the value they get for it. And so that whole notion of foreseeable misuse, I think, was one of the, one of the really significant ahas I got out of that notion, out of that, out of that experience, because it, it was something that if I had not seen with my own eyes, I probably wouldn't believe it. Yeah, you know, like, I, I really like that you mentioned it. There are so many workarounds that people do that we are just not aware of, and we're not in that operational practice. So th mm -hmm. that's, from my experience, I'm sure you heard about this, but for barcoding uh, at the bedside, there's always like other uh, workarounds that people do with keeping the oh, beds yeah. in their pocket or keeping a scan code on the, the in the nurse unit and things like that. So it's it's just really interesting that people will always try to find a way to kind of circumvent the systems. And that's one of those things that, you know, working in pharmacy technology, your emphasis on, you know, uh, trying to mitigate those risks is uh, very important. And, uh, you know, just... Uh, this field, it's still fairly new still, even at this point. And yeah, you had so much experience and there are people out there that are students now that want to get into this field. And then there are also individuals that are not practicing uh, in informatics, but they want to get into that. And, you know, you mm -hmm. had experience from that route too. And uh, I was wondering if they asked for some advice from you, like, what would you say to them about like maybe transitioning from traditional practice into informatics? Like how would, uh, uh, what kind of advice can you give them? Well, there's an article in 2009 that I, I wound up being one of the authors on um, in AJHP called Wither Pharmacy Informatics. And it talks, that article talks a lot about the skill sets you need to be able to really survive and thrive in, in an informatics role. And, and, you know, so if somebody thought they would, they'd like to do that. Uh, there's a few things I, I would suggest. You know, one is, you know, given where you work now, look for opportunities to get involved in the informatics 
ecosystem where you work. You know, whether it comes down to periodically helping it with, with say, formulary maintenance or uh, product configuration or those kinds of things, start getting involved with those to the extent that you can. Because usually there's far more work for informatics people to do than there are informatics people to do it. So if they're working with someone in a staff position or a, a, a mid uh, or frontline management position, you know, who's willing to um, you know, to go the extra mile a little bit and troubleshooting and those kinds of things, you know, they're usually more than willing to, to work with you. And that's a way you demonstrate to the management of your organization that maybe you're the, maybe you should be the next person they move into that kind of a role. The other thing that I, I, I personally found was useful over time was when, when someone was coming in either from the vendor or from IT or whatever, you know, troubleshooting a problem, I would look over their shoulder and ask them questions about why that was the way it was and how did they figure out how to do that. And, and you know, sometimes the answers were really gruff because not all people are, are all that talkative. But, you know, it's another way to kind of get a, get a, a sense for, uh, for for what's involved in doing this job and whether or not your mind works on it. One of the things I, I, I tell my students is if, if you don't love this stuff, you're in the wrong place. Um, and I mean that with a passion. Uh, I, this is the kind of, the kinds of things you have to learn and deal with when you're dealing with informatics and with automation are so far beyond anything that you learned, you know, in pharmacy school, unless you're in a residency program or something for informatics, but are, you know, are so far beyond that that you, unless you've experienced it and you just enjoyed the heck out of it and, and those kinds of things, you know, how would you know? One of the other things I've seen a lot of people do that kind of gets them get the bug is they spend, they develop a certain amount of facility typically with Microsoft Excel or any other spreadsheet, depending on what you use, but learning to program those, even if all you're doing is putting formulas and sheets and maintaining complex, you know, workbooks and worksheets and lookup tables and those kinds of things. That, that's another thing that you can do to just get to the point where you start appreciating you know, how logic works and how you solve problems uh, using stuff that looks like coding. If those kinds of things will turn out to look good for you, that th- those are things you can do now without taking additional programs or, 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 or training. There are, of course, PGY2-1 and PGY2 residencies and that kind of stuff. Uh, but for somebody who's already earning a living and maybe supporting a family, that's probably a a bit of a leap to do. So, you know, getting in, doing what you can and demonstrating an interest to people so that when that, when another position opens up, you know, even sitting down with a supervisor or a, or a director and saying, you know, I, I think I'd really like to do this. If a position opens up, I'd really like you to consider me. Well, okay. Make sure people know you don't need to be a programmer. I mean, it's something I taught myself to do and I've done it now about six times. I, I program in about six different languages. Um, and I, I actually had to do it for a living for a while and learned very quickly. I didn't like doing it for a living very, for, uh, very much. I liked doing it to play. But um, it's not so much about becoming a good programmer as it is to, 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 to develop an appreciation for how computer logic works. Because when you appreciate how computer logic works, your relationship to automation takes on a different and a more productive, in my mind, a, a different, more productive association because it's not i actually know worked with people 
who treated the computer, uh, you know, an automated system as if it were a petulant child. And, you know, I'm sorry, they're not. Computers are literal idiots. They do exactly what you tell them to do and nothing else. <laughs> and everything that you did tell them to do, whether it makes sense or not, they don't have filters, right? So when, when you understand that, understand what's likely to cause a problem with that, then you do. If you're really interested in design work, user interface design and those kinds of things, there's a book I highly recommend called by Bruce Tognazzini, who was one of the original uh, mentors of the, uh, of the Apple graphic user interface. And the book is called TOG, T-O-G for Tognazzini, on interface. And it's not a hard read, but it's really, really useful in, look, in helping you look at any user interface you deal with right now and figure out what's good, bad, and ugly about it. And it was one of the seminal books that uh, that I was introduced to that uh, really, really helped me in the user interface environment. You know, there's lots of things you can do in informatics. It's not just a monolithic role, right? Uh, so it's everything from troubleshooting to installations to management to database management to strategic planning around what automation you need and want and where you're going to get it. And that's one of the roles I've been privileged to play now is that the is I have a innovation in my title. And so one of the things I do is keep a, a mental checklist, sometimes a written checklist of the things I wish I had automated tools to do. And when I find somebody who's starting to think about doing something like that, I get really interested. And not all of them are going to succeed. But the more people try, the more likely are we are for somebody to actually develop something that that is cost effective for us. And that's really exciting stuff. That's a lot of what gets me out of bed in the morning. Awesome. You know, like, thank you for, you know, just sharing some of that advice. I think it's really good for uh, people to hear, especially the thing about like, you need to love this to like actually be in it. Um, it's, it's not like just a, you know, easy job that you're just going to spend minimal hours on. It actually does take a lot of time. So I'm glad that you mentioned it. And, you know, if uh, people had like further questions uh, for you, like what's the best way that they can reach you? My personal email address is D-A-T-D-O-C, uh, dot doc at AOL.com. Yes, I'm one of those people. I'm still on AOL. But uh, drop me a note. I'm pretty good at answering. Just let me know who you are and where you heard of me and what you'd like to discuss. And I'd be more than happy to, to chat with folks. Awesome. Awesome. So thank you so much for, you know, just being on the show and, uh, I'll be putting your contact info in the show notes for anyone who's interested in reaching out, but to be respectful of your time, I know that you, you're really busy. So to be respectful of your time, I'd like to thank you again for taking some time of your busy day to be on the show. Well, thank you, Tony. I actually enjoyed the heck out of it. So, uh, you know, maybe we can do it again sometime. Right. If you like our show, please share with your friends, or you can help us out by writing a review on Apple Podcasts or any of your other favorite podcasting services. You can also check us out on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn, and you can also reach out to me at Tony at PharmacyITME.com. If you want to network, you can check out the Pharmacist Select group at PharmacistConnect.com, which is P-H-A-R-M-A-C-I-S-T-S-C-O-N-N-E-C-T.com. There's different topic channels, including informatics, and I've met some great colleagues on there, and I look forward to connecting with you as well. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode of Pharmacy in me and remember technology is a tool patient care is the goal